Marion was tapping his toes up here. <laughs> that was wonderful. Look, if you're visiting with us, I want to add my welcome to Marion's and welcome you here to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. We're really delighted that you're here. We're delighted that you chose to come here this day to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with us. And our prayer and our hope is that you've been encouraged in that and will continue to be so as we work our way through the scriptures this morning. We are going to be in Luke chapter 15. If you were to, um, if you were to go to the FBI's website, how's that for an introduction? If you were to go to the FBI's website and went in and you pull out your keyboard and you typed in a search for Isabella Gardner, you would be directed to a web page that would have an entire, it's a whole web page devoted to the Isabella Gardner Museum heist. And all of the paintings and the pictures are there. Now, this is an amazing heist. It took place in 1990 and is still the greatest single art heist ever. Over $500 million in artwork was stolen in that museum that evening. If you're, if you're familiar with the story, you'll know what happened. Two men came into the museum dressed as police officers. And they lured the guard away and they got his partner to come, telling him that they had been called and that they were responding to a to a phone call. And so they got the guards and they got them together and once they lured them away from their, from their security button, the, the alarm, they tied them up and they took them down. They duct taped them to the pipe work in the basement of the museum. And then they proceeded to go and cut out the famous paintings. One of which is one of my favorites. And that is uh, the painting of on the storm of this uh, Sea of Galilee by Rembrandt. Five hundred million dollars in artwork was stolen that evening. The FBI is still looking. They're still actively looking for that artwork. If you go to their webpage, it says they're offering a five million dollar reward for any information leading to the recovery of that artwork. But they're still searching, still looking, still hunting for the artwork. Have you ever lost something? Ever lost a wedding ring? You ever lost some money? Have you ever lost your wallet? Every man in here loses his keys every day. What do you do? You go and you look. You conduct a search, don't you? This morning, we're in Luke chapter 15. Many of you know this parable by its common name, the parable of the prodigal son. And we want to look at this this morning and we want to ask the question, what did Jesus really say? What did he really say in Luke 15? Let's look at it together. If you have your Bibles, we are going to pick up in verse 11. Verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, 
the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death? I will set out, and I will go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he said, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we come to it this morning, we pray that our meditations on it and the words of my lips concerning it would be acceptable in your sight. And Father, we would ask that as we read it, that the purpose for which it was given would become clearer to us. And so give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first time that I remember hearing this parable ever preached was when I was in seminary at Westminster Seminary in California. One of my professors, a man named Ed Clowney, preached this passage. And wow, I had heard it, I know, I I knew the story of the prodigal son, But I'd never heard it that way. And it came alive to me. And these uh, more recent years, um, Tim Keller has preached this passage and actually written a book. 
And I would encourage you, if you haven't read the book, to go and get it. I think the title of it is The Prodigal God. And it's, um, he does a wonderful job with it. And so we're going to be following that trek this morning as we work our way through this. Jesus would tell parables because he wanted to highlight the truth about the kingdom. And so he would take and he would tell these stories. And so Mary and I, over the next 10, 11, 12 weeks, are going to be preaching a series of these parables. We can't get them all. There are 40-some that Jesus told. But all of them are highlighting some aspect of the kingdom of God. And so this morning we want to look at this one and as or actually we want to take all three of these. We want to look at them together because he told the three parable, parables and they're, they're a triad of parables. They're intended, all of them together, to communicate to us a heavenly truth. And so as we look at this first one, I want you to, as we look at these, I want you to see just kind of the situation. And you're going to see it right there at the beginning of chapter 15, and those first couple of verses. And the situation is this, that Jesus is together, and there are tax collectors and sinners. And Luke tells us that they are actively gathering. They are gathering to Jesus. That means they're still coming. A crowd is kind of enveloping him and is all around him. And the indication here is a little... It goes a little bit further, and that is that Jesus is actually breaking bread with them. He's fellowshipping with them. Now, in those ancient uh, uh, cultures, when you sat down to have a meal with someone, you you were inviting them to a deeper fellowship into your life. And so Jesus is gathering, sitting, breaking bread, developing this relationship with tax collectors and sinners. And then what we read in verse 2 is that there was another group. So this is kind of a cast of characters. Jesus, tax collectors, sinners, and then Pharisees, the teachers of the law, righteous religious men. And they were sitting and they were muttering to themselves. They were watching the scene unfold. And you'll notice what they say there at the end of verse 2. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. There's disdain for what it is that Jesus is doing. And of course, Jesus knows this. He knows what it is they're thinking. He knows what it is they're saying. He knows what it is they're feeling. And Luke tells us that Jesus told them this parable. And so he launches into a series of three parables. The first parable is about a man who has a lot of sheep, a hundred of them to be exact. And as he has these sheep, he loses one of them. And so the story is that he goes out, would he not, Jesus says, he, he offers up a scenario and then he offers a solution. Wouldn't the man, if he had lost a sheep, wouldn't the man go out and search for that lost lamb? What's the answer? Of course he would. Of course he would. And so in the story, Jesus says, yes, he goes out and he searches for him. He makes a search far and wide. And and when he finds the lamb, he puts the lamb on his shoulders and he brings the lamb home. And then what happens? There's a great party. He throws a party. Verse 5. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And he goes and he calls his friends and neighbors together. And he says, rejoice with me. For I have lost, I have found my lost sheep. 
And then in verse 7, he says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be great rejoicing in heaven over one lost sinner who repents, as opposed to what? The many who don't. The 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Oh, are you starting to feel the ground move a little? Maybe this is more than just a story about a sinner who comes back to the Father. Well, let's look at the second parable. He tells another parable. He goes right into it about a woman. She has ten silver coins. This is a lot of money. She's got a significant amount of money locked up in these ten silver coins, and she loses one of them in her house. So what does she do? Well, Jesus says she would light a lamp and she would make a careful sweep of the house. She would look for the coin. And then when she finds it, she would once again call her friends and neighbors together and she would say, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. Verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there's great rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one lost sinner who repents. And then Jesus moves into the third parable. Parable that we're most familiar with. The prodigal son. A man has two sons, Jesus says. Not one, two. He has two sons. One of them, the younger, went to his father and he asked him for his share of the inheritance. And so, get the picture. The son comes and says, Dad, I want my share now. Now, right out of the gate, that's just wrong. You just didn't do it. But this son does it. He has that kind of gall. And so he asks his father for his share. And what we find out here is that the father divided his estate. And so he divides the estate and then he takes the share of the younger son's inheritance and he gives it to them. To him. And then we read next that this son, sometime later, and the idea there is the son went and he took and he liquidated his share and he put it in a little baggie, which was now full of coin, and he took off and he went to another land. He got out of Dodge and he went off, and verse 13 tells us. That in that distant land, he squandered his wealth and wild living. And then after a little while, after some period of time had gone by, there was a famine in that land. And things got really bad. And here was this guy who had squandered everything that he had because he had liquidated it all in wild living. And he had gone off and spent it on all sorts of crazy things. And then the famine hit and he had nothing. But he got hired. He got hired to go feed a man's pigs. Now, remember the audience. Remember who he's telling the story to. So it's gotten really bad. And so the man was feeding the pigs, and as he was feeding the pigs, he thought to himself, boy, I sure wish someone would give me some of that. Ed Clowney used to say that his repentance began in the lowest part of his stomach. 
is he was hungry. He had gone that far. He was down that low that what he wanted was the food that he was feeding the pigs and he didn't even have that. And so his the repentance began to rumble in his stomach. This is not at all a righteous repentance at the beginning of it all, is it? This is, I have nowhere left to turn. And so he began to think. And what he thought was, gee, you know, back in my father's house, my servants had it a lot better than this. My father's servants, they had it way better than I have it right now. And so perhaps, perhaps if I were to go home and throw myself at my father's feet, he would have mercy on me and at least treat me as the lowest of his servants. And so he began. He began his journey back home, didn't he? And on his journey home, he begins to write out his story. He begins to write out what it is that he's going to say to his father when he gets home. But what does the text say? Look at it. It says, while he was yet a long way off, His father saw him. His father saw him and he gathered up his robe and he ran to his son. And when he gets there, notice what his son starts doing. His father throws his arms around him. He's kissing him. Verse 21, the The son begins the speech, okay? He's going to get it out. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then there's an interruption. And the interruption comes from the father. And the father says, quick, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. And put the ring on his finger and the sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened cap and let's kill it. Let's have a feast. Because the son of mine that was dead, he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. That's an amazing story. Any way you slice it, the prodigal portion of this story is amazing. When you read it, you go, there's hope for me. I mean, here's the son. He gets all that money. He goes off. He, it's the beginning of a testimony, isn't it? I mean, he is going to write that testimony that everybody loves to hear. You know, in our day, he went and he got a tattoo and he wrote a Harley and it was, it was wild. Okay. And when that guy starts telling the story, everybody goes, yeah, my story doesn't, my story fails in comparison. That's the kind of story this kid was writing. Listen, don't minimize what the text tells us. The younger brother knew. I mean, the older brother that stayed behind, he knew what had happened. If you, if you go down just a little bit further, um, you'll see verse 30. The older son gets it. He says, when the son of yours who squandered your property, what? With prostitutes. The older, the older brother... He, he got it. He knew what kind of testimony his younger brother had written. He was indignant about it. But the father welcomed him. He showed him amazing grace. He lavished on him his love. He welcomed him into his arms. And then he treated him as if he were that son. He put his finest robes on him. He gave him a ring 
showing equality that he had. He had equal authority with the father to conduct the father's business. And then he put sandals on his feet. And then they threw the most lavish party he could throw for him. That's the prodigal son's return. That's his welcome. Now, in the parables, in these three parables, right now, at this point, the parable should what? It's over. It should end. Because in each of the parables, something was lost. In each of the parables, until this one, a search was conducted and something was found. And then there was rejoicing. Now, this parable changes a little bit. It's different. First, no search was conducted. The younger son went off and he went on his way and there was never a search. parable should rightly end here at the party, but it doesn't. It goes on, beginning in verse 25. Meanwhile. Meanwhile, there was an older son, and where was he? He was out in the field. And when he came near to the house, he heard that there was a party going on. He knew what had happened. And he gets there, and this party is going on, and it's taking place, and it's rocking. And so he called to one of the servants, and he, he comes out, and he says, Hey, uh, what's going on up there, my father's house? Verse 27, Your brother's come, he replied. Your father killed the fattened calf because he's back, and he's safe, and he's sound. Verse 28, we find out that the older brother was angry. He refused to go in. And so what happens next? The father comes out. He comes out to him and he wants to find out what's going on. Verse 28, he answered his father, look, look, all these years, look at what I was doing. I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat to have a party with my friends. But this son of yours, he went off and squandered all of that wealth, and you throw a party for him. Then verse 31, the father said, you're always with me, my son, and everything I have is yours. If you take the three parables, where does the spotlight land? The spotlight lands right here in verses 25 to 32. That's where the spotlight lands. Jesus wants us to see something here. Several things, actually. The first thing is, this older son had absolutely no capacity to rejoice. No capacity to rejoice. More than that. He had no capacity, no compassion, no desire. He cared nothing for his younger brother. I mean, here he was at the house. And and what should have rightly happened was someone should have gone to go search for that younger brother. There he was. He had liquidated his finances. He had taken off to a foreign land. Someone should have gone in search of him. And what Jesus is telling us is that that someone is the older brother. He was the one that should have taken off and gone out and gone in search. And yet no search was conducted. 
so in the parable, what has happened here is that Jesus has taken himself out of the parable. He's taken himself out as the one who goes and conducts the search, right? What did he say? I have come to seek and to save the lost. He came down from heaven in order to redeem those that the Father had given to him. And so he is the one who is searching. And in this parable, he takes himself out. And who does he put there? He puts in the older brother. He puts in the very individuals that were sitting there watching him have a meal with sinners and tax collectors. He puts into the story the Pharisee. He puts the Pharisee in the story. And he says, here, here you are in the story. You're sitting back. And, and what is it that they're doing? Why, they're rejoicing in their own good deeds. They're rejoicing in what it is that they've sat back and done. Notice in the parable, all these years, verse 29, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeying your orders, and you never gave me anything. Now why does Jesus do this? Well, it was grace, free grace, yes. He's emphasizing that, he's showing that to us. But of course, he wanted to show the reluctance of the son. He wanted to show, he wanted to highlight his own work, what it was that he had come to do. But the second thing is, why won't the older brother go into the party? And he won't go into the party because he doesn't understand the nature of grace. He doesn't understand, does he, that he too has been a recipient of the father's love. What does the father say to him? Well, notice first, what does the Father do to him? As he stands outside the party, as he stands outside the celebration, what does the Father do to him? He comes out. What did he do to the first son coming down the road? He went out. That highlights the need of them both. They both have a need. The younger son had gone off and squandered his his wealth. He'd gone off and he'd lived wild. He'd gone off and done it his way. The older son had stayed behind. Him. But guess what? He was doing it his way too. And so the father goes out to him. He goes out to the field to woo him in. To bring him into the celebration. To bring him into the party. Now, you've got to understand the celebration, the party. What has Jesus told us in the two prior parables? It's a picture of heaven. It's a picture of the celebration, the grand meal that will happen at the end. And so what is he saying? By having to go out to the son and to woo him into the party, he's saying, you're not yet a part of this gathering. You're not yet a part of this celebration. That's why he has to go out and woo him in. And so he goes out to the son who doesn't yet understand the father's love, does he? He doesn't get it. Because look at what the father tells him. The son is saying, listen, all these years I did all of this stuff for you. I was perfect. I did it just by the book, dad. I did it exactly the way it was supposed to be done. You didn't even kill a, you didn't even give me a young goat to have a party. And what does the father say? The very last verse. He says, everything that is mine is what? Yours. Everything that's mine is yours. 
Don't you see? Don't you get what I've done for you? Don't you get all that I have given for you? And of course the son doesn't. Here's the other thing. What is the cost? Where does the cost land in this parable? There's a cost for the party. If you go back and you think about it, there's a cost for a cel- the first celebration. The son's party, the, the get-together, the, the fattened calf and the robe and the ring and the sandals. There's, there's a cost associated with this gigantic party that's being thrown. This heavenly gathering. Who does the cost fall on? It's another indication that Jesus is identifying with the older brother and and that he should have been there, isn't it? Because the cost associated there comes from the older brother. Remember, the father took his estate and what did he do? He halved it. And the, uh, the younger son liquidated his, but the rest belonged where? With the older brother. And so the cost falls on the older brother. That's where the cost is. Listen, there is always a cost for salvation. It's not free. There's always a cost associated. There's always a death. There's always a sacrifice. In this case, the sacrifice fell reluctantly on the older brother. What does Jesus tell us about his own ministry? What does the Apostle Paul tell us? Take your Bibles and turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we see the cost. Jesus reminds us of the cost. You know the cost. He died on the cross. But look at the way Paul puts it. Beginning in verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy compete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who... Being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He was found in human likeness, found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient even unto death. You see, Jesus is highlighting the nature. He's there. He's sitting. He's having a meal with sinners and tax collectors. The Pharisees are sitting back. They're watching this all take place. They're mumbling. They're muttering. How could he eat with them? They don't get it. They don't see their own lostness. They don't see their own need. And what Jesus is highlighting is, listen, there are two ways to miss the gospel. There are two ways to miss Jesus. The first way is to go and live like the younger son. The older son missed the gospel too. And this is probably the one that most of us would struggle with. And that is to believe that because you've stayed behind, because you didn't go and squander all you had, because you didn't go and and party with prostitutes, because you didn't go and sail the seven seas, because you didn't go and do all those terrible things that rotten sinners and tax collectors do, but yet you stayed behind and you obeyed the law. That somehow the Father owes you something. 
And what he's indicating to us is, no, he doesn't. There's no salvation in law-keeping, just like there's no salvation in law-breaking. And that we're all in need. And it's only as we come... It's why the the picture is so beautiful, because by the time the younger son makes it home, the repentance that started in his belly has reached his heart. And it is a beautiful picture, and it does highlight for us, and it shows us the way. And the way is through repentance. The only way for the gospel to ring true in our hearts, the only way for us every single day to know a right relationship with the Father is to give up any claim to anything that would commend us to Him. Both lawkeeper and lawbreaker. The right way to the Father is through repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word and what a powerful reminder for us. For many of us have struggled with the breaking of your law and many of us have struggled with the keeping of it, thinking that somehow by doing all those things we're better than others and you owe us something. But Father, we would thank you that Jesus came and directly confronted both our sinlessness and our sinfulness. And He showed us that we're all in need. Father, this day, would we all begin right here, Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church, would we begin this week by confessing our need and throwing ourselves at the feet of the Father, praising Him for the work of the Son. Lord Jesus, we thank You. We thank You for taking our sin. We thank You for Your righteousness. Holy Spirit, would You uphold our hearts this day as we confess Him as our only Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.